enticing or we give in to temptation. And just like the song says, I justly stand accused. I did it. I, I messed up. I sinned against you. Yet we hold fast to the anchor. And it goes all the deeper because it's not up to us to be acceptable before you. It's up to Jesus and his righteousness imputed to us. The alien righteousness of Jesus that's not our own given to us that drives that anchor all the deeper when we justly stand accused having sinned against you even as believers. Um, God, I thank you that, that uh, when unbelief seems to just hit us and, and tear us down and we start to wonder if we're truly yours and if this whole Christian thing is even true, that our eyes turn to Calvary and you, God, are the ballast of our assurance like we say. You are the weight under this boat that keeps it from, from turning. And as we cast our eyes on you on that cross, we can regain the stability that we need. And that your sacrifice for us was sufficient. The wrath of God was paid for. And the anchor goes all the deeper. And we hold fast to it, God. And as we look to glory, how awesome that is going to be. Um, all the, the words of Paul that uh, when, he, when he went through things that we'll, we will never experience, the litany of struggles and trials and suffering that he endured, and yet he said it's, it's a light and momentary affliction compared to the glory that is to come. Uh, and how true it is that the calm of that day will be all the better because of the storms that we endured here. Not in our own strength, but because of the anchor of Jesus that helped us endure them now. Um, I believe that, God. I believe that we will look back on this life and all that we went through, all the storms that we went through, and the calmness of the glory in your presence forever will be all the sweeter because we went through those things. Um, and God, if that, if that helps us, that helps me or, or one of my family members here in this church get through a tough time today knowing that the the storm that they're going through today as they lean in on Jesus and they let that anchor go all the deeper and they seek him for his ballast and, and, and um, security and balance in their boat, God, uh, that they will know that, that according to Romans 8, 28, that hard time will be turned and used for their good. They will be turned for their good uh, and the calm will be all the sweeter on the other side. So thank you, God, that we experience some of that now. And I thank you that that is our destiny, those that have uh, repented and turned to you in uh, true repentance and faith. Um, thank you that that's the, the destiny that we have to look forward to. God, would you now anoint um, Pastor Josh as he brings the word. Would you uh, speak through him boldly? I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would um, speak through him with unction and use him in a powerful way in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray this. And you see the E-Kids has our release. Oh, who's doing E-Kids today? Adrian, you got E-Kids today? Adrian, you got E-Kids? All right. All that we didn't want to turn them loose to know yeah. they upstairs. That would be, that would be terrible. <laughs> Church, it is uh, it is great to see you this morning. Um, I'm so thankful for for this man to my right and uh, him 
and taking the time to, to lead us in worship every Sunday morning. And I'll never forget, I was uh, setting up in the sound booth, that's where I was this morning, uh, making sure the live stream's working and everything's going according to plan. And uh, Seth is usually up there with me, and Seth uh, had to work the COVID ward at work uh, this week, and so he thought it best to stay away, and I thought that was wise as well. Um, but he was up there one Sunday, and Adam had just finished praying, and he looked at me and he said, who is that guy? <laughs> so uh, I got a chuckle out of that. I said, that is a man who loves the Lord and, and loves him deeply. And so I'm so thankful to have Adam here. Um, just the, the in-between comments between songs are a sermon in and of themselves. And uh, you don't find many song leaders uh, worship leaders who have that kind of understanding of theology and the deep things of God. And so we're, we're blessed, and I could spend a, a long time telling you just the grace at, uh, at work in bringing him and his family here um, to our church and, and kind of crossing our paths. And so I, I won't, I'll just say that God is gracious and he is good, and we're so thankful for the people he's brought here. Um, we're thankful for you being here this morning, that he's brought you in our midst, into our family. And so uh, we all also have some extended family with us this morning in the back. Uh, we have uh, two gentlemen representing Trail Life USA, and uh, so they are part of the, the church with a capital C, and uh, we're excited to have them with us to tell us about Trail Life, a program designed to disciple young men, and they also have Heritage Girls, right, I think is uh, the other uh, program that uh, is uh, focused on discipling young ladies. And so uh, we're excited to hear from them after our morning service. Uh, they'll be speaking to our leadership team, and, uh, and so it's a grace that they're with us as well. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them to the book of Luke. It's been a long, long time since we've been in Luke, and so I'm excited um, to dig back in. This is a, a series that we began um, last uh, winter. Uh, we started in Luke. We got all the way to Luke chapter number 6, and then we're going to pick it up in chapter number 7 this morning. And so for those of you who are new to our church... To give you kind of um, an explanation of how we go about teaching and preaching the scriptures, uh, the first thing I would say is that at Emmanuel Baptist Church, we're concerned with teaching the whole counsel of God. And so in order to do that, we don't do a lot of topical sermons. Um, there are things in the Bible that I would love to preach, and I would probably spend my entire time in those passages. And so you wouldn't get the whole counsel of God. And so we intentionally go book by book, verse by verse, and that uh, makes it so that I not only preach the things and the passages that I like to preach, but also the ones that maybe are a tad bit uncomfortable. And uh, so that's our habit is we go book by book, verse by verse. We also have journals that we give out. Um, we're going to have to do some digging. I don't know if the Luke journals are back in the foyer, but uh, we do give out a journal that uh, you can follow along in the book of Luke. It's got the scripture there, some pages that you can take notes in. Um, if you need one of those, see me and I'll make sure that you get one. Another resource that we're really excited about here at the church to get you digging into the word is our Abide Study Journal. And so this was an effort that actually uh, was undertaken by our church. Um, we, Pastor Reese, put this uh, together. It's, it's very nice. Each day of the week, you've got a scripture passage there. We've gone through a chapter a day. Our intent is to go through a chapter a day for the entire year. And then a place to put your notes. It's got a timeline. Some of you discovered the timeline this week. So that's really cool. Um, it is in chronological order. And so you've got a timeline at the bottom that kind of follows 
follows and keeps track of where you're at in the scriptures. So uh, on Sundays, our plan was to go through our Abide journal reading together corporately. Uh, For sake of time this morning, we're going to skip that. Um, That's something you can do at home with your family today. Uh, We'll pick that up next Sunday, but we do have these available if you're interested. And again, the hope is that we will be in all of the scriptures, uh, that we'll preach and teach and study the whole counsel of God. Now, how do we determine what book we're going in? That's a little bit different here to Manual 2, so I'll explain that process as well. So some of you are saying, why are we picking up on Luke? I mean, why was there such a hiatus there in between? Well, what we do is we've kind of broken up our, our preaching into seasons that loosely follow the church calendar. And so in the fall, we typically go through an Old Testament book. And uh, this past fall, we went through the book of Hebrews. You say, Pastor Josh, I don't know if you know this, Hebrews is not in the Old Testament. I do know that. Uh, But Hebrews is a really good overview of a lot of the Old Testament. And so that's our Old Testament book in the fall. Uh, Then we go into Advent and Christmas and Epiphany. And so we uh, are very focused on, on celebrating that season. And then we come out of Advent and out of Christmas And as we enter into winter and into spring, we go through a gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or also the book of Acts. And then in the summer, we pause our study in the gospels, and we go through an epistle. And we just keep going in that cycle until we overcome, or not overcome, but as as we explore the entire book. And so Luke, we began last uh, winter. We got through the first six chapters, and so we're going to pick it back up. And uh, we'll do so until Pentecost, and then we'll jump into a New Testament epistle. So now you know how our practices are at Emmanuel. And uh, without further ado, let's dig into the book of Luke this morning. And before we do, let's go to God in prayer and ask for his help. God, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to study your word together. I thank you for the hunger uh, in our body for the word. I thank you for the just the... Um, engagement on one another in these past couple weeks as we dig through the scriptures and wrestle uh, with them together in community with one another. I, I thank you for that. What a blessing and a grace that God, I pray that our church would continually to be tethered to the word of God, that as we turn the pages of scripture, that it wouldn't just be a habit, Lord, uh, but also that it would be life-changing, that it would turn our hearts to you, that we would um, come to see you and understand the one true God you would reveal yourself to us and in your revealing yourself to us that we would grow in our faith and trust in you more and more every day. God, that's the prayer this morning as we come to your word in the book of Luke. I pray, God, that it would inspire us to place our faith, to place our confidence in you. And uh, we do so this morning uh, thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who did all that was necessary to satisfy the law and its demands, who lived the life that we could not live who gave himself a substitution on the cross for us, who died in our place for our sins and felt the full weight of your wrath that we might not have to, that we can place our faith and trust in him this morning, that he is our scapegoat and that he is our salvation. And it is him that we praise and worship this morning. May he be lifted up in all we do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you're in the book of Luke, you're in chapter number seven. I want to get you guys caught up a little bit, a little kind of reintroduction to the book of Luke. So we know that Luke was written by Luke, and who is Luke? Anybody take a wild guess? We got some kids up here, so any of our kiddos know who is Luke? What was his profession? If he had a job, what would it have been? 
a doctor, right? And uh, so that was, it was Dr. Luke. And so in that times, medicine was a little primitive, uh, not nearly what we know it is today, but he was nonetheless a physician. He's also a wonderful historian. He was a fellow worker, so he wasn't actually an apostle. Uh, we don't name him as an apostle, but he certainly was a close uh, companion to the apostles, especially one in particular who loved him deeply, the apostle Paul. And so he actually traveled with the apostle Paul in his missionary journeys. And, uh, and you may not know this, but Luke writes more of the New Testament than any other person. And so Luke, 52 chapters are penned by Luke's hand. And so if you look at the book of Luke's and Acts together, uh, he writes more of the New Testament than anybody else. And so he writes this book, Luke, one of the Gospels. And who's he write it to? Do you guys remember a long time ago we talked about this? He writes it to a man named Theophilus. And there's been some speculation about who Theophilus is. So Theophilus means lover of God. And so there's one camp that says that Luke is written for everybody. It's written for anyone who's a lover of God. And so it's written and addressed to us. And certainly in God's providence, that's true that um, the book of Luke is for us. It's for our church and for our edification. But I think that Luke uh, was probably writing to a real person named Theophilus. He was probably a Roman official. Uh, we don't know a lot about him, but we do know why Luke writes to him. He tells us this in the beginning of his gospel. He says that I write to you that you might know with certainty the things about Jesus Christ. And so he writes an orderly account to Theophilus, a Roman official, in order to compel or to encourage or to strengthen the faith of Theophilus, that he might know with absolute certainty that the things of Christ are true. And we said that Luke is not an orderly, it is an orderly account, but it's not a chronological account. So it's not an order. So when you look at that, that throws some people because you look at some of the other gospels that are chronological and in the sequence events, it seems like it doesn't follow time. And that's absolutely true, um, but it's definitely organized. And so I want to give you kind of a rough organization of Luke this morning. So if you look at Luke, chapters one through three are all about the coming of the son of man. And that's the title that Luke uses of Jesus as the Son of Man. So contrast that with John, who is all about the Son of God. So John really emphasizes the deity of Christ, while Luke recognizes his humanity, the Son of Man. And so 1 through 3 is the Son of Man comes, and then chapters 4 through 21 are the Son of Man seeking. And so you can actually, if you want a verse that kind of summarizes the entire book of Luke, it's, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so in chapters 4 through 21, we see him seeking. And then in chapters 22 through 24, we see him saving. The hinge chapter is really chapter number 4. So we spent a long time on this last winter. And I want to give you a little bit of a refresher on chapter number 4. Do you remember 4 at all? If you don't, go back and read it uh, this afternoon. Spend some time there. It's really such a pivotal chapter in the book of Luke. And for a number of reasons, it's Jesus preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. Remember, Jesus was from Nazareth. It was his hometown. And so this was kind of the, the hometown kid's big day. And he preaches his sermon there in the synagogue there at Nazareth. And ultimately, he is rejected by his own. And it's there that Jesus quotes the famous saying that a prophet is not received or accepted in his own country. And, uh, and so in that chapter, in chapter number four, not only is Jesus rejected, but Luke uses this message, this sermon, to really tell us 
what Jesus' ministry and mission was going to be all about. This is interesting because Luke does this. Luke does this in Acts, too. So before he goes and tells about the workings of the early church and their mission and their ministry, he kicks it off in Acts chapter number 2 with what? What's in Acts chapter number 2? Peter at the day of Pentecost preaching, right? There's a sermon. And in that sermon, Peter really kind of outlines the ministry of the early church. And in the same way, Luke organizes the book of Luke in this fashion. He has the sermon of Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth in chapter number 4. And he lays out what you can expect from Jesus the rest of the way in the book. Now, this is going to be really, really important, so I don't want you to miss this. You could say that this sermon in particular was what we would say is programmatic. It was all about what Jesus' program was. So we've got two guys here. We've got a couple families here, actually, from Trail Life. In a little bit, they're going to tell us about Trail Life, and you're going to tell us about your program, right? And we're going to hear more about what to expect from Trail Life and what they're going to do and what a Trail Life uh, club would look like at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And so in the same way, Luke lays out for us in Luke chapter number 4 what Jesus' ministry is going to look like. Because he, he doesn't want you to be shocked. The rest of the way is going to shock some folks. It's going to be a stumbling block for some. And so he lays out what Jesus' ministry would be. And at the end of that scene in Nazareth, Jesus tells, by way of illustration, two stories. Do you remember them? One was of Elijah and one was of Elisha. And he tells of the miracles that were done by both of these great men of God according to the faith of some Gentiles who were outside the Jewish camp. And you remember, it's at this point that the Jews get so angry at Jesus that they take him out of the temple and they try to stone him, not by throwing stones at him, but throwing him at the cliff. And so they are incensed and they are so angry. And they're angry because Jesus tells these stories of two Gentiles outside the Jewish camp getting the grace of God. And in effect, what Jesus said was the gospel is not for the Jews. The gospel is for people who are poor, blind, and captive. You see, the Jews thought that they were okay. They were in good standing with God, that they had everything that they needed, that they had the law and the prophets, and that God was on their side, and they had no need of a Savior. And when Jesus comes and says his program is to seek and to save those which are lost, the Jews could not identify as being lost. They were already found. They were in the covenant. And so when he says that the gospels for people who are poor, blind, and captive, and then gives two illustrations of who those poor, blind captives look like, and they're not Jews, they're Gentiles, in effect, what he was saying to them was, you Jews are less wise than a Gentile leper. And the gospel is not for you. <clears throat> and they were angry. And they tried to stone him. Because it was just, it was blasphemous for Jesus to say that this gospel, his message, his prophecy was going to be for Gentiles, for the dogs of the world. That he was going to step over the children of Abraham. In fact, there was an inscription on the temple at that time that says this, Let no Gentile enter within the partition and the barrier surrounding the temple. And whoever is caught shall be responsible for his subsequent death. There was a huge wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. And they did not mix. And Gentiles were outside the camp. 
And now what Jesus is saying is that his gospel does not know any division. That this gospel is for everybody. That this gospel is for the Jew and the Gentile alike. And that this grace was going to go outside the camp. And it was going to be received in faith by the Gentiles. By those who are poor, blind, and captive. This should not shock you. But it's, it, it shocked a lot of people then. It shocked the Jews. It was a huge stumbling block. In fact, later in chapter number 7, we're going to find out that it's a stumbling block even for the greatest man that we've ever known. Who's the greatest man in the Bible? Any idea? Jesus himself says this is the greatest man. John the Baptist. And later in John 7, John the Baptist, in verse number 18 through 23, is going to send his disciples to Jesus. He's going to ask this question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for somebody else? Greatest man, this is the one who saw Jesus, right, and baptized Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Man of great faith, a man who recognized and understood who Jesus was, and now he's sending disciples to Jesus saying, Are you really this guy? Or was I wrong? Because I'm not, the things you are doing doesn't make a lick of sense to me. And what was it that Jesus was doing that didn't make a lick of sense to John the Baptist? Well, I'll tell you what he wasn't doing he wasn't overthrowing the Romans. That was confusing because if you looked at prophecy, that's what Messiah was going to do. He was going to overthrow Rome. He was going to liberate the Jews. He was going to be the rightful one to set on the throne of David. And he doesn't do that. In fact, it seems like he's cozying up to the Gentiles. He's buddying up with them. He's giving his gospel of grace to them. And so it's confusing to even John the Baptist who says to his disciples, you've got to go check this out. Like None of this makes sense to me. He's not doing anything that I thought he was going to do. He's being awfully kind and awfully good and awfully gracious to the the dogs. And he's stepping over us, the Jews. And what does Jesus go back and tell him? He says, you go back and you tell John the Baptist what? He's saying that the, the blind have received their sight. The lame have walked. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus says, I'm doing exactly what I came to do. And it's interesting, as he quotes Isaiah, he leaves out the next couple of verses because that's about establishing his throne. And that wasn't in his first coming what he was here to do. In his first coming, he was there to give his life a ransom for many. And to preach good news to those who are blind, poor, and captive. And he says later, he says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This was hard for the Jews. In chapter number 7 all the way through to chapter number 22, we're going to see the compassion of Jesus on full display. And he's going to go to people that the Jews would have never thought he would ever go to. He tears down that wall and the gospel goes to the uttermost parts of the world. And it begins in Luke chapter number 7 with the centurion. And so if you're there, we'll go ahead and read it together. We're going to dig in one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. I'm super excited to to talk about this this morning. Um, I'll skip to the end. Uh, J.C. Ryle says, There is no greater miracle of healing performed anywhere in the scriptures than what happens right here. 
And so I tell you this because this centurion is a Roman. And Jesus is going to be very kind to him. He's going to extend grace to him. And this is a stumbling block. But you should not be surprised by chapter number 7. As Jesus goes first to the centurion and then to a widow's son. And as he begins to do all kinds of good works in the sight of the Gentiles. Don't let it catch you by surprise. You already, Luke already told you this was going to happen. In Luke chapter number 4 he says this is Jesus' program. What he does is going to take the gospel to those outside the camp, to the Gentiles. And we here today are a result of that program. That we Gentiles have good news preached to us. And this isn't this the prophecy of Simeon? I mean, in Luke chapter number 2, remember all the way back, Simeon holds baby Jesus up in the air and prophesies over him. And he says he's going to be what? A light to the Gentiles. And now in chapter number 7 of Luke... All the way through the rest of the book, we're going to see Jesus being a light to the Gentiles. And that's good news for you, Theophilus. Because that means that salvation has come to you. So let's, uh, let's dig in. Luke chapter number 7, verse number 1. After he had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes and to another, come, and he comes and to one servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Amazing healing takes place here in chapter number 7. It begins with the centurion. And so what do we know about centurions? I'm not going to pretend to know a lot about them. Um, but I, there are a couple of things that we do know. As a soldier in the Roman army... Um, typically, it was kind of a middle rank, so you could maybe think of a captain. Uh, they would typically be over about 100 other soldiers, and uh, it wasn't the highest rank, kind of middle road. Um, there is a historian, uh, Polybius, and he writes of a centurion to give us kind of a picture of what these guys were like. He says, these men were not so much to be seekers after danger, as, but men who can command, steady in action, reliable, they ought not to be over-anxious to rush into a fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. Pretty neat picture of a centurion in that day. And so you would think about what uh, true biblical masculinity looks like. It looks a lot like they're not over-anxious to rush into a fight. They're not going and picking fights, but when hard-pressed, they're ready to hold their ground and die at their post. What a great, great kind of picture for us 
today. And so that was a centurion. Might be like a marine today, you know, Semper Fi. Um, you know, marines are kind of the few, the proud. Um, that's what comes to mind. I, I kind of thought of Tom Hanks um, and Saving Private Ryan kind of is that guy, I think. Like he's not going and looking for a fight. He's not uh, somebody who is aggressive, but definitely one that would hold his ground and die at his post. And so you, maybe that's the picture you have in your mind of this guy. Maybe Tom Hanks would play him in a movie, The Centurion. Um, had a high social rank. If you were a captain that day, you were doing pretty good. You would have a couple of uh, slaves, and, and he did as well. And so what do we know about slaves in that day? Well, they had absolutely no rights at all. So there was no right for you as a slave. You could be bought and sold and even killed. You were just property. Um, and so as such, one Roman writer uh, who writes a book on farming, kind of like the Farmer's Almanac. You know, I lo we love that book in West Virginia. It's amazing. Everybody has a Farmer's Almanac. And this Roman writer who wrote about farming said that his uh, readers, who are also farmers, should examine their implements every year and throw out those which are old and broken. And he said, I suggest you do the same with your slaves. So in other words, take inventory of your tractor, take inventory of your farming equipment and your soil and all that stuff, and also your slaves. And if anything's broken, make sure you purge it. So I don't, like the Maria Kondo of the Roman Empire, I think, right? And so uh, if, if your slave doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. Um, that was how slaves were looked at in those days. Absolutely no rights at all. And so I'm setting this up as kind of a contrast, right? He's the centurion, the slave. There's a wall there, big wall, big, big social wall. And uh, what happens is this slave gets sick. And we don't know what kind of sickness it was, but obviously it was really bad. Um, but Luke tells us that not only was this uh, servant, the slave, this doulas, sick, uh, but he was also at the point of death. But there's a little phrase there. This slave, who had absolutely no rights at all, was highly valued by this centurion. A little bit of a question there, like highly valued. Valued how? Like the slave was really strong and had a lot of value uh, as a slave? Or was it more like he cared about him and cared for him as a person and enjoyed his company and, and loved him? And so we would say that it's the latter. It wasn't just that he was valuable to him as a slave, but uh, that he cared about him. This was odd for that time. Again, they're property. They have no rights at all. They're easily to be disposed of. You take inventory of them. And yet this centurion is, is cares deeply for this servant. And so you could probably imagine he came down uh, one morning. He would check to see how he was. Is his condition improved? He would make his rounds. And he found out that morning that he was near death. And he was troubled by it. It says a lot about the centurion and his character. He would be troubled by a slave's condition. Somebody who is disposable. But yet, that, that's him. That's our guy. And uh, so he's a centurion that has a heart, uh, values those who the rest of the world is, looks at as discards, is not valuable. It says when he finds out, he comes down, he finds out that he's sick and to the point of death, the, the centurion hears about Jesus. <laughs> I think this is one of the most interesting phrases this whole narrative, because how did he hear about him? It wasn't, now obviously Jesus did a lot of miracles in Capernaum. Um, there was probably a lot of chatter about Jesus and the healer that he was. But if you look at the grammar, it says when he heard about him, then he sent him elders. So apparently up to this time, he had no knowledge of him somehow. Um, I don't know if he lived under a rock or maybe he just came back, and, but he doesn't know anything about Jesus till he hears about him. And so I just kind of wonder, and maybe you'd speculate with me too, who told him? 
And how did he find out about Jesus? I wonder if it was like the story of Naaman. Remember in chapter number four, there was Naaman, the Gentile leper. How did the Gentile leper find out about uh, the prophet? Remember? It was one of his, uh, it was his help. It was one of the, the cleaning ladies in his house. You know, the lady in the broom closet who was just a, one of his servants told him about this wonderful healer that could help him. I wonder if that was the way it was for this uh, centurion. That Maybe he was at home and he comes down, he checks on his servant that he loves. He's grieved that he's near death. And there just happens to be a cleaning lady there. You know, a cleaning lady who's cleaning to the glory of God, who's doing her work. I mean, she's not a pastor. She's not an evangelist. That We don't see that he hears by any type of great, um, you know, preacher or, or by, you know, any type of revival meetings or anything like that. It just says when he heard about Jesus. And I just can't help but wonder if it wasn't just somebody who was just doing their work to the glory of God. And in that moment found out that here is my master who has a slave, a servant, who they were probably friends with as well, who's not doing well. And in that moment had an opportunity to point to Jesus. I just think we get so caught up on, on the, the big, you know, the preachers and the evangelists that, you know, don't forget, friend, that whatever profession you're in, whatever your work, whether it's as a cleaning lady or whether you're maybe a physician like Luke or maybe you're a businessman or maybe you're an artist like Seth, whatever your occupation is, do it to the glory of God. And you never know when the moment comes for you to point to Jesus for such a time as this. We don't know who pointed to Jesus, but when the centurion heard about him, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And so we say this is the plan. Army guys have plans, right? They have lots of plans. Everything goes according to plan. And so it's not a surprise that the centurion has a plan. You don't get to become a centurion if you're dumb. And so he's not a dummy. He wasn't born at night. Um, and so he has a plan on how to engage Jesus. He doesn't want to go to Jesus on his own. And there's a reason for that. Because Jesus is a Jew. And so he understands the workings of the Jews. That they're not going to receive him. If Jesus is a Jew, he's not going to hear out a Gentile dog. Especially a Roman who is occupying Jerusalem. And so he has a plan. He goes to the elders. And now it's amazing here that he has a good relationship with the Jewish elders for the same reason, that they would not look highly on this Gentile. But they do. They, they actually listen to him. And he tells them that Jesus probably won't hear me, a Gentile, but he'll hear you, the Jewish leaders. And if you will go to Jesus and bring him back so that he might heal the servant that I love. And so he has a plan. And the Jews go, and they go to Jesus, and they seem to do it willingly, uh, which is amazing, because he could have commanded the Jews. I mean, he's a Roman, uh, Roman centurion. He could have said, you, you're going to do it, or I'll kill you. Um, and they would have had to do it under authority, but it looks like they do it willingly. It doesn't appear that he commands them to do it. Actually, it seems like the Jews are particularly fond of this centurion, which again is just really astounding. Because, I mean, what kind of a man is this that he had not only friends among the Jews, but also loved his slaves? Seems like a pretty good dude. Well, the Jews tell us exactly why they love him. Because they go to Jesus, and look what it says. They come to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. 
And why is this man worthy? Because he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogues. That's why the Jewish leaders love this guy. So, because this Roman loves the Jews, which in and of itself is a very strange thing. I mean, the Romans did not love the Jews. They did not often do good to those countries that they occupied. But this centurion, obviously a different kind of fella. Loved the Jewish people, loved their culture, recognized his limitations as a Gentile, respected their religion, and then also went so much as to build a synagogue for them to worship in. Pretty cool guy. And it reminds me that God turns the heart of kings. Yeah, that's important. This centurion is, is not, he's outside the Jewish faith. I mean, he's not a member of the covenant. But God uses him. That God can use councils and governors and centurions for his purposes. To bring about his will. You know, this centurion could have held this small Mediterranean country in contempt. But because of God, he loved the Jewish nation. God was at work in his life. God was directing it. And so we've got a plan. And the Jews are going to execute this plan. And then in the military, they have a lot of different words for when the plan goes awry. Um, some that are PG and some that are not. I'm going to give you the PG ones. Uh, Charlie Foxtrot, Snafu, Quagmire. And that's exactly what happens here. So Centurion has a plan. He sends the Jewish elders. Jesus is going to receive them because they're Jews. And when the Jews get there, what's their approach? Patronage. Right? So this guy, Jesus, listen to us. you got to heal this guy. You, they pleaded with him earnestly. Why? Because he is worthy to have you do this to him. What a Jewish approach, right? I mean, this guy is a good guy. He's a good dude. He's done a lot of good things for us. He's poured a lot of his own money into building the synagogue. He's a good guy. He deserves it. He's merited it. I mean, you see how you, you, what you believe, it works itself out in how you live. I mean, they believed that they were worthy, they were good, they were righteous, they had merited God's favor. And so that's how they approached everything in life. Like, he's a good guy. You should do good to him because he's earned it. So we don't know what happened in this scene. I would like to think that maybe someone was trailing. I, I imagine in that day, we don't know how far it was from Jesus to the house. It must have been a pretty short distance. But somebody in the household probably trailed and listened to see what Jesus said to run back and let uh, the centurion know. And so what this guy does is he listens. He hears the Jews' presentation. And then he runs back and he tells the centurion. This is how I just see this playing out in my mind. Maybe I'm taking a little bit of artistic license here, but, uh, but just um, patronize me. And uh, so we'll go with it. But I'm just trying to think of what this looks like. He goes back and he tells the centurion, he's like, you're not going to believe what they're saying about you. Like, the Jews are telling Jesus, like, you need to come do this because this guy's a big shot. And he's done a lot of good things for our community. He's like, you're not good. He's like selling you that the Jews are talking all these good things about you. You're such a hero to them. And, and you could just see like probably the centurion's countenance change. The more this servant talks, like that's not at all what I had in mind. This is bad. This is not good. This is mayday, mayday, abort mission. The Jews have screwed it up badly. They went and tried to get Jesus to do a healing on the basis of patronage. And that wasn't at all what the centurion wanted. So the centurion tells this servant or whoever it was to go back 
You know, I, I just, I picture Michael Scott, you guys are Office fans, you know, where the, the meme that's out there where he's like, no, 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 no! Like, I just can imagine the centurion in that moment as he's hearing that they are trying to sell him and his merits to Jesus. And so he's like, you're going to go back, and this is what you're going to tell Jesus. And again, why is he not coming to Jesus on his own? Because he's a Gentile. He doesn't want Jesus to dismiss him just because he's a Gentile. So he's already, that's his posture, that I'm not worthy to come to Jesus. And so he goes back, he says, you're going to go back to him, we're going to try this again. We're not going to do the Jewish approach, it's not going to be on the basis of my merit or good things that I've done. Here's the right approach, and so let's pick it up in uh, verse number uh, 6. It says, And Jesus went with them. Jesus was actually going to go, which again is amazing because Jews weren't supposed to go into the houses of Gentiles. Jesus seems not to care at all about that. He's going to go right into the house of the Gentile. And uh, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, that's a great way to start, right? That's a much better approach. So the Jewish approach was to go to Jesus, plead with him, and say he's worthy to have you do this for him. And the centurion's right approach is to go back and recognize you are Lord. I can't demand you do anything. It's amazing that the centurion got this and the Jews didn't. I mean, the Jews are the prophets and the scriptures in the Old Testament. I mean, they didn't understand the consummate lordship of Jesus, but the centurion got it. So he goes back, he says, Lord, what did he say? Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So don't think, Lord, that it was because I felt like it was beneath me to come and visit you. Don't think that I have this inflated ego and view of myself, that I somehow deserve your grace. Don't think that I've merited your favor. You don't owe me a thing. In fact, don't even trouble yourself because I'm not worth your trouble. A totally different approach. And he says, the real reason that I didn't come to you or have you come to me is you're not, I, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. What a much better approach. You know, this is the only way we come to Christ. The only way. You can't come to Christ any other way than this. This is what the Jews didn't get. This is why they were so offended in Luke 4. Because Jesus calls them poor, captive, and blind. And they say, not us. We've merited. We're good folk. We've kept the law. We've done everything. It's why the lawyer went to Jesus and turned away sad. Because he says, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And your neighbor is yourself. And he says, I've done these things got it. I'm good. I don't need any help. So they were so offended when Jesus called him poor, captive, and blind. And I love what Alistair Begg says. When you're gripped by grace, you always come on a bended knee. When you really see who you are, when you see your impoverishment, when you understand your destitution as a sinner, you always come on bended knee. You're like the publican who beats his chest and looks up to the sky and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Jews were like the Pharisees who kind of distanced themselves from the publican. To thank God I'm not like that guy. Thank God I'm not a Gentile. Total right approach now. Centurion gets it. But look at what he says to Jesus. He says, but. I think three of the most powerful words in all of scripture. Say the word. Say the word. 
You go, we've been in Genesis in our abide journals, and you're in Genesis 1-1. How do the worlds come about? God said the word. He just says the word, and it's done. Incredible statement. And the centurion gets it. He understands the lordship of Christ. Says, just say the word, and let my servant be healed. You say, how does he have such an understanding of lordship? He says, because I too am a man set under authority. I want you to get this. This is real. Prepositions matter. And so when you look at the grammar in verse number 8, I too am a man set, and what's the next word? Under authority. <clears throat> That's true. What he didn't say was I am a man in authority. That's also true. Because he was. He was over 100 men. He had status and, and certainly um, the ability to command there at his post in, in, uh, in Capernaum. But he says, I am a man under authority. He understood how authority worked. That even though he was in authority, that there was always someone above him in rank. And so I, there's a lesson here for us, I think, on authority. And maybe you know, we don't have the time to dig into it. Maybe that is one of those times where it would be great to do a little topical study here and see. I mean, and get a better understanding. I think we really struggle with this, and we, we oftentimes we want our kids to understand what it means to be under authority. And you know the best way that we teach authority is by our, ourselves being under authority? If you want to teach somebody to be in, under authority, then you teach them by you yourself being under authority. That you model that. You say, do as I do. And so he says to Jesus, I too am a man who's set under authority, and I have soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, I say, do this, and he does. You know, it's amazing when I look at this. What the centurion says, essentially, is, I don't know much. I don't know a whole lot about the Jews and your religion, but I do know authority. I know how authority works. I've stood before generals. I've possibly stood before emperors. And he understood more than anybody what it meant to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now, as a dad, I will tell you that this terrifies me. And this is why. This guy had not been born and raised in the shadow of the synagogue. He had not been steeped in the literature of the Old Testament. He had not known intimately the oracles of God found in the prophets. He was a stranger to the covenant, a foreigner, an alien to the Old Testament world. But he understood authority, and he understood that Jesus had it, R.C. Sproul says. Now why that scares me as a dad is you can bring your kids up in church. You can bring them up in the Bible. You can have family devotions. You can enroll them in our New Trail Life Club. You can do all the things but you'd better teach them to be under authority. Because the centurion didn't have all the things that the Jews had, but he understood authority. And it was his understanding of authority that brought him to Christ, and it brought him a right posture, a right disposition before him. And so for me as a dad, what I, I look at this, I say, I better teach my kids authority. I better teach them submission. But how do I teach them that? It's not do as I say, not as I do. I teach them that by me, myself, being under authority. 
And so how is my life? You know, am I submitting to my boss at work? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Are you submitting to your pastor? Are you submitting to your governor? Because the reality is, if you don't teach authority to your child, if you don't teach them submission, and if your child finds it hard to bend the knee to their human rulers, chances are they'll find it hard to bend the knee to Christ. The centurion says, I don't know much, but I know authority. And I recognize that Jesus is the authority. And I know exactly what I need to do if that's the case. And so he comes in a totally different approach. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't come to you, but you just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my other servant do this, and he does it. It's like, all you got to do, Jesus, is just give the command. And what's Jesus saying? Verse number nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. You know, there are only two times in scripture Jesus marvels. This is, I think this is just really profound. So the first time is in Mark 6, 6. Let me read it to you. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the village's teaching. This was in, in response to the Jews. He marveled because of their unbelief. And then here in Luke 7, 9, to a Gentile, he marvels, turning to the crowd and saying, I've told you that not even in Israel have I found such faith. That this Gentile dog, this one who is outside the camp, understood better than the children of the covenant. And he understood better because he understood authority and understood Christ is Lord of all. And he bowed the knee and he said, all you got to do is say the word. We started with a quote from J.C. Ryle. No greater miracle of healing than this is recorded anywhere else in the Gospels. Without even seeing the suffered, without even the touch of his hand or the look of his eye, our Lord restores to health a dying man by a single word. You've got to think, this must have been a pretty incredible moment for all those who had witnessed it. Verse number 10, it says, When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And so the question for us this morning is, where is your faith? Do you recognize that Jesus is Lord over all? Do you see him as in the same way as the centurion? Do you understand what it is to be under authority? Have you submitted to him as Lord? Have you come to him in humility? Are you still looking at your own merits? Are you still looking at the things that you've done and your own accolades and successes? And are you still kind of pushing those forward like the Jews did? Who are saying, Jesus, this guy deserves it. I can tell you that if you come to God saying that you deserve grace, you will never find. But if you come to God in the way of the publican and say, I am not worthy, I am not worthy for you to come to my house, I am not worthy for you to give me any of your grace, be merciful on me a sinner, you will find abundant grace that day. And so the question for us is, where is our faith? Don't, don't stumble at Jesus in Luke. 
Don't be like the Jews. Don't look at it and, and stumble in seeing him going to those who are lost, to the outcasts, to the Gentiles. Let it be an encouragement to us. That's good news. I, I love when I was reading this and I was seeing the compassion of Jesus, that Jesus seeks those who are lost. That's great news for me. Because maybe you're here today and, and you would say that I'm lost. I mean, this, these past two weeks have been brutal. In, in my life, maybe your life, different things going on, and you would just say, I am broken. And I love to see the compassion of Jesus for those who are broken, for those who are needy, for those whose souls are tired, for those who need rest, that he says, come, take my yoke upon you. Let those burdens fall off. What a great word for us. There is grace. And the thing that is cool about going through the Bible and different books is in Hebrews. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact nature of God. He is the exact image, exact likeness. And so if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. And this is God's disposition towards you today. If you are weak, needy, broken, poor, captive, and blind, he is here to seek you out and give you grace. What a good word. God, let's uh, pray together. God, thank you for, uh, for our church. Thank you for those who have come to hear your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, your word would do its work. They would not return void. I pray that you would uh, be over uh, the discussion and, and our leadership meeting. And we just thank you for those who have brought to our church this morning. Uh, these uh, families from Trail Life, we thank you for their ministry. pray you would uh, strengthen their hands for the work that they have before them. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to partner with uh, other like-minded believers. God, we pray that our church would be strengthened. Uh, we pray that you would raise up men in our church, uh, men like the centurion who, who love those who are vulnerable and those who are beneath them, who care deeply for, for others. God, I pray that you would also give us uh, the faith of the centurion, that we would have that kind of faith to know that you can just speak the word and it will be done. God, we come to you in humility as sinners who are not deserving of your grace, but so thankful that through Jesus Christ you have lavishly poured it on us. God, we pray that you continue to fill up our cup and that by grace we would continue uh, to live our lives. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name.